Now, uh, uh, George Orwell in his book, 1984, which is a book I think many of us had, had to read, right, for school, uh, he coined a term called doublethink, right? And the term doublethink, it was where kind of the leaders, uh, they would convince the public of one thing when they knew the opposite was true, right? And he defined it in the book as to be conscious of complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies. You see, this was a dystopian universe that George Orwell thought of when he wrote this in 1949 here. You know, thank God that that's not a part of our lives right now, right? But <laughs> you see, in the 1960s, though, about 10 years after 1984 was written, the New York Herald, they used a term called the credibility gap. You see, they were using it to describe the Vietnam War at that time. And they were saying that President Johnson, he was saying one thing, and yet evidence continued to show that something else was happening entirely. You see, the administration, they would come up and they would give these speeches and they would give these rousing testimonies of all these different things and they would use these catchphrases and they, say, they would say, America is turning the corner. They would say, America is doing great. We are heading in the right direction. Vietnam is going to be won in this way. And yet what the public would soon realize was that actually the U.S. were losing and they would realize that their soldiers, that their brothers, that their sons, that they would be dying. And so there was this credibility gap that formed between what was said and what was actually happening. Now in the 1970s, that term became popular again. And it was when President Nixon ordered secret bombings of Cambodia and lied about it to the public. Now, this term became popular again in the 1990s when President Clinton lied under oath about his affair. Now, today, the term credibility gap is not as commonly or widely used as before, but I don't think it's because our leaders have become more truthful. You see, the Bible, it talks about how important our words are constantly. In Proverbs 18, it says, a person's words can be life-giving water. It can be a babbling brook that is completely refreshing to the soul. And yet in Proverbs 25, it says, the wrong words, it says, the lies that you say are as harmful as stabbing someone with a sword or chopping someone down with an axe. You know that phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones. And yet words can kill you. Words will kill you. We know this. We know this to be a fact. Words can cause depression. Words can cause stress. Words can cause anxiety. Words can cause suicide. We have seen this again and again all through elementary, middle, high school, and adulthood. And yet on the opposite end, we know that one word it can change a person's life for the better. That just one word can help fulfill someone's potential. You know, when I first came to Shining Star to work here, 
uh, and to serve here. I, I never thought that I would be in this position, speaking to you, we, speaking to you weekly. It was absolutely daunting. And I never, never thought that this, especially at this time in this place, would be where I would be doing this almost every week. And one of the reasons why is because how can I speak about the Bible when I can barely live this out myself? And so every single week I would come up here and I would feel like a hypocrite. And you know, it was only a few months ago where I remember I, I did a sermon on forgiveness, right, on repentance and forgiveness. And I remember the next day I got in my car and someone cut me off and I almost ran into them on purpose. And the only reason I stopped was because I realized I was a church member in front of me, right? <laughs> but I was so angry. And the minute I, after the red disappeared, right, after, like, after my mind became clear, I was so disappointed in myself. I was so guilty. And I felt so upset because the day before, literally 24 hours before, I was standing up here speaking about forgiveness, speaking about what Jesus has done for me, speaking about these things. And yet, how in the world am I able to continue to, to live that type of life? You know, I remember a few weeks ago in our First Steps class, I asked the question, if you could, only, if you could give one piece of advice, just one, what would it be? And all of us, I remember, said the exact same thing. We said we would be more careful with our words. And the advice we give is to just be really careful with your words. You see, church, our words matter. And the promises we make matter. In this passage here, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, he spends an entire paragraph talking about promises. He's, he's talking to this crowd and he says, You have heard it said, you shall not swear falsely. In other words, don't make false promises. He says, don't make false promises, but keep the vows that you make to God. And I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You see, back then, back then, there weren't written contracts. Instead, people, they would make verbal oaths, verbal promises, and at that time, what would happen is that there would be different types of promises you can make. And the way that they differentiated it was by what you swore by. And so there would be people who would swear by maybe their home. They would swear by their family. They would swear by God. And you see, the most serious and the most binding promise was the one that you made swearing to God. You see, if you swore to God, then it was a life and death oath. You had to fulfill it. So what people thought back then 
is, okay, if I swear to God, then yes, I have to follow through. I have to do it because I know that God is keeping me accountable. But if I swear by anything else, if I swear by the heavens, if I swear by the earth, if I swear by my family, if I swear by these other things, then it's not as serious. And so if I need to break those, then I can break them. But Jesus, he says, he says, look, this is what you were thinking. But here in verse 34, he says something interesting. I'd rather you not take any oaths at all. He says, look, don't promise by heaven or by earth or by God. Now, what does this mean? Because, you know, a lot of people, they would misinterpret this, this passage, this verse. And they would say, okay, so what that means is, I'm just going to take a super literal that, that Jesus is saying we shouldn't make any public promises in general. Is that really what he's saying? Because if that's true, then he's a hypocrite. Because in Matthew 26, you see Jesus, he speaks under oath, and he's being questioned by the high priest, and it's in that moment where he does make a public promise. And not only that, in the Old Testament, we see again and again God giving covenant promises to his people, again and again and again. And so what is Jesus trying to say here? You see, Jesus isn't saying that you can't take oaths. In fact, what he's saying is actually the opposite. That you cannot separate levels of truth. That as a Christian, that as a follower of God, that you cannot differentiate between what you say, that I'm going to say this is the most truthful I'm going to be, and if I say this, that I can say a little bit, I can twist it around a little bit, and I can say this other way. No, no, no. What Jesus is saying is, no, what you say is oak. What you say are words that, that mean a lot, that have power. So let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. Don't let any other way, don't let the world try to change you in any other way. You know, there was a story of a man whose life had fallen apart because he had an affair. And this man would, he would wait until his wife would go on business trips away, and he would bring his, the, the mistress over, and... Before the mistress would come, he would go throughout the house and, and uh, every picture that, that had his wife in, he would, he would uh, cover it. And the counselor was asking, like, why would you do it? What, what was the reasoning behind it? And he says, because when, when for him, when he got married, he knew that he made a vow. He knew that he, he made a vow to, to, to love her and to, to stay with her and to, to be faithful to her. And, and he knew that whenever he would see her picture, it reminded him that he was breaking that vow. You see, for us, we believe in the God of the Bible. And in the Bible, it says that God is everywhere and that he is with you. And what Jesus wants for us is to be people of integrity, to be people of the truth. And he says the, he says the way that we can do that is really simple. is by realizing that the only eyes that matter are always on us. For a lot of us at this moment, we can have one of two thoughts. Either we are scared and upset that we should act with integrity 
because God is watching us, and, and that's why it feels like he's a he's big brother or he's, he's some type of, you know, this, this constant dictator who's just looking over us and making sure that we're not doing anything bad. Or we can be grateful. See, in verse 20, Jesus, he contrasts us with the Pharisees, and he, said, and he says, your righteousness needs to be greater than theirs. The Pharisees here, they followed the law, but you see, their hearts were wrong. They operated out of fear of going to hell, not out of love for God. See, church, when you love someone, you're accountable to them. That's part of what love is. And because you're accountable to them, you want to speak well, and you want to act well in front of them. And it's not because you're scared of them, but it's simple. It's because you love them. And when you realize, this is, and this is, I hope, freeing for you as well. When you realize that God is ever beside you, then what is there to fear? In Psalm 16, David, he's talking to the people. And he, says, David, he says, God is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. See, church, if God is with you, then there is nothing to fear. If God is for you, then who can be against you? If God is for you, then even in the most difficult of times, you know, you know you're going to be secure. You know you're going to be safe because he's looking out for you. He cares for you. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the greatest, most powerful being in this entire universe loves you and cares for you. Now the question is, how do we live this out? How do we live in a way that for us, we won't have levels of truthfulness? How can we be people of promise? In verse 37, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you say yes, let it really be yes. Don't say yes here, but no over there. Don't say yes here, but live out no over there. It means being the same on the outside as you are on the inside. You see, the word integrity is the same root word as integer. And now in, in, uh, in math class, right, we learned integer is a whole number. It's not a fraction. I actually have to kind of look that up. <laughs> I forgot it. <laughs> You see, a person with integrity is a whole person inside and out. But a person without integrity is someone who's fractured. They say one thing and they do another. Are you one way in public and one way in private? Do you say you believe in one thing, but really you're thinking of something else? Are you different at church on Sundays than you are at work on the weekdays? You see, society has lessened the value of our words and the promises we make. There's this uh, famous Greek philosopher, 5th century Greek philosopher named Protagoras. And he said, man is the measure of all things, of the reality of those which are, and of the unreality of those which are not. 
In other words, even back then, the greatest mind said the same thing that are, that's being said now, that truth is relative. It's all dependent upon what you think. Man is the measure of all things. What you think matters the most out of anything else. What you, de- what you deem truth is truth. And that's the exact same thing that's being said today. And so for us, we have devalued commitment because for us, what that means is it boxes us in and it tells us that our truth is wrong and that our happiness is not the most important thing. And so if commitment goes against our happiness, if commitment goes against what we think is our freedom, then there's no way that we want to approach that. There's no way that we want that. And so what we see today is that people and our culture are moving further and further away from the biggest commitments that we can make. We don't want marriage. We just want to live together. We don't want to define the relationship. We just want, to, we just want an open relationship. We don't want to join a church. We just want to come and go as we please. We see church without commitment without following through on our promises, we lose our identity. That man who had an affair, he was talking to his counselor, and the last, one of the last words he said was, look, I, I just, I don't know who I am anymore. And I've been able to counsel people who've gone through these addictions, who've gone through these ups and downs like that, and and for a lot of them, they have lost their identity. And they question exactly where they are and who they are. You see, when you lack integrity, then in every situation, you're going to simply do what you think is best for you. There's not going to be any type of middle ground. There's not going to be any type of foundation. You will constantly be up and down. And when everything is dependent on you, then there's nothing left that will define you. For me, I was saved when I was 19 years old. I had this life-changing experience when I went to this summer conference in California. And it changed my life. And I, I... I trusted in Jesus in that moment because I felt he was so real to me. I was 19 years old. When I was 22 years old, I went to Korea and I became so bitter, more than I'd ever been in my life. I was so angry at God because I thought that he sent me there without a plan and without a purpose. And when people, they would come up to me during that time because they saw that I was struggling and they would say, you know what, God, he has a plan and a purpose for you and I would blow up in their face. I would be so angry. What would they know? How, how dare they try to speak those things into me? How, how can they even assume that they know what I'm going through? And throughout my life up to this point, plus 10 years of being saved. I have asked God so many times to be clear with me. I have asked God so many times to be as clear as he was when I was 19 years old, when he first saved me. And guess what? That hasn't happened. 
Even during my time here, when I've been struggling, when, when in, in this leadership position, when I, am, when I am trying to speak and when I felt so confused, when I have felt so lost at times, when I have felt like I didn't know what I was doing, I've asked God for clarity in those moments that he would be as clear as he was when I was 19 years old, and he, and he wasn't. He hasn't. And yet, why am I still putting my life into his hands? Why am I still standing here before you? Why do I still believe in Jesus Christ? I've never heard an audible voice from God. My dad has. I haven't. I've never had a burning bush experience. I've never had dreams where I knew that this was God. You see, the reason I'm here is because when I was saved at 19, I made a commitment to God that I would follow him for the rest of my life. I made that commitment. I promised the Lord that. And you see, for me, I'm not saved because of that one experience. I'm not saved because of that one moment. I'm saved because I know that I am a child of God, not because of that one thing, but because I have made a choice to follow him daily. That is the choice that you're going to have to make as well. That is what a Christian is. It's a choice to follow Jesus Christ. Look, that experience was pivotal in my life at 19. It was one of the cornerstone moments that I will always remember. But it is not the defining moment. The defining moment is every day for me when I wake up to choose to follow God. I am a child of God not because of that one thing. It's because I believe every day when I do my quiet time, when I pray to the Lord, that I say, God, renew in me. Give me a fresh spirit. Renew in me. Give me a fresh awakening of who you are. That I'm not asking, Lord, I, I, I'm asking for more. I'm asking that you would show me more of yourself. I'm asking that you would show me a, a greater awakening of who you are, a new experience of who you are. But even if you don't, I will still follow you. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to follow Christ. And when you have that type of commitment, then you know what? Even in your confusion, even in your anger, even in your sadness, even in your depression, you will still be able to endure. You will still be able to have joy. So church, look, we change. And our commitments will change. But thank God we serve a God who does not change. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed this, God, if you are willing, if you are willing, then please take this cup away from me. But God, your will be done. I will trust in you. I will trust in what you want. See, Jesus, he did not live hypocritically. He did not live double-sided. He was transparent with his heart, and he followed through on his death because he knew that it would give us life. That's our God. He is our redeemer. He is our creator. And he is the one in whom we can put our trust because he will not fail us.
for me, yes, I have prayed again and again that God would show me something new, that he would show me in the same way that he, would show me, that he showed me when I was 19, and he has not done that. And yet, God has given me so much more than that. And so church, I, I pray and I hope that that would be your story as well. Look, we can try to box God into a corner, into the expectations that we want, but God, he wants to give you so much more. He has saved your life. How much more is he willing to give you? So all we need to do is come to him, repent of our sins, And he will save us. You see, Paul, he writes in 1 Corinthians, you are not your own, you are bought with a price. You are saved not through your works, you are not saved through your own righteousness, you are saved by grace alone through the blood of Jesus Christ, through his death and through his resurrection. So church, just go before God and be transparent. In Matthew 21, Jesus, he tells this parable of two sons. Both are told to go work in the vineyard. And the first one, he says no at first. But later he repents and goes. But the second son, he says yes and never goes. Jesus asks the Pharisees, he says, which one was right? And the Pharisees, they say, oh, the, the first one. And Jesus says, you're right. And that's why prostitutes and sinners will go to heaven before you do. Church, is not your record of how good you are that matters. It's your willingness to repent that matters. There's only one person that can save your life. There's only one person that can change you from the inside out. There's only one person that can heal the blind completely, that can do all of these Crazy miracles, yes, that's Jesus Christ. But more than that, more than that, he has died and rose again so that you and I can go to heaven and join him forever. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that has changed your life. That's the God that has changed my life. And so what he asks for us now is simply to go to him, to repent, and to love him. So let's pray.